Okay, here's a controversial question, semi-controversial question. Who likes bad Christmas films? I love them. You wouldn't think that I would love them, because generally if something gets popular kind of value, I find a way to be cynical about them. Now, here's the thing, though. I don't really enjoy them in themselves, of course, but because I get to make fun of them. And what a fun thing it is to do, to make fun of something that's really cheesy and lame. Like, uh, maybe you've heard of the title called A Christmas Prince. Yes, please. What about Holiday in the Wild? Not really Christmassy film, but yep, let's put it on the list anyway. Christmas Wedding Planner. Someone get some popcorn. This one's going to be really bad. I cannot wait. It's going to be so good. So many are so horrible, and I love it. It's my sarcastic nature. It's just something that I get to do. Now, every one of these cheesy, hallmarky kind of Christmas films has a happy ending. Every single one of them. Happy endings is something that we all want. Like these films are delivering like easy comfort and I'm, I'm here for it. Happy endings is something that we all want. You may not always want them in every single film that you see, unless you want to make fun of every film that you see, but you definitely want them in your life. We all want happy, uh, joyous endings in our lives. There's a reason that cheesy Christmas films persist and it's probably something more than because people like to make fun of them. <laughs> Happy endings in films tell us that everything will be alright, that all will be okay. And that's really a good thing, isn't it? A good ending, one that's truly enjoyable, needs to have conflict before it. There needs to be some kind of tension if there's going to be a, resol a resolution. Because a resolution, by definition, is a release of tension. So you have to have that tension in there. For us, we're always out there chasing happiness, expecting life to just be one, like a, a series of one happiness block after happiness block that we can stack on top of each other. Now, if we go about life in that way, we will miss the truly happy endings that God has planned for us. Because if we are going after that happiness stacking, we're always going to be avoiding trouble. We're always going to be avoiding conflict. But here's the thing. Blessings will come. Blessings will come. Happy endings will come. And we're at the end of the story of Ruth this week. As we anticipate, as we anticipate the celebration of God becoming man in Jesus at Christmas, and as we look forward to his coming again to make this world new, our story that we've come here in Ruth has taken on troubles, has taken on bitterness, and we've seen little rescues here and there. We've seen others uh, come through for other people, and this shows us that we need others to come through for us. And now we're at the end. Now, if you remember, Ruth is taking place during the time of Judges. Very few fun, happy times to be spoken of in Judges. But in Ruth, there is a happy ending. It's proof that happiness can be found in the midst of horrible circumstances. The theme of this chapter is so clearly about blessing, uh, so we're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to talk about what, what, what does that word really mean, and, and how does Ruth teach us about what that word means. We'll get to the point of Ruth, and really to the point of Advent itself, the four weeks going up to Christmas. Jesus is the ultimate blessing. He's worth waiting for. He's worth pursuing. He's worth going through the tensions of our lives so that we might be with him in that complete resolution. But let's get to our first point. Blessings pursued. What I want to maybe have us take a look at is a focus on our responsibility as humans first. 
on our work. Like we don't just kind of drift towards happy endings, towards good resolutions. We need to pursue them. It requires something of us. And one of Ruth's themes is God's goodness, his power, his, to see that goodness come through, and our responsibility, how those two work together. Now, Boaz, he's up front here. He does business honestly. He's not deceptive, even though there's something that he really, really wants. He's not trying to get his own way at the expense of others. And this is in his pursuit of doing a good thing, of, of being able to marry Ruth. So there's a legal kind of business discussion. And in the middle of it, in verse 4, it looks like this other guardian who's unnamed, this other kind of guardian redeemer, is going to take the land instead of him. But Boaz persists, and he tells the whole story. He's In his honesty, it shows the whole story, and the whole of it shows that it's best for the other guardian to not take that land, not marry Ruth, and it's best for Boaz to take that land and marry Ruth. And this is also what's best for Naomi. So Boaz was working within the legal system. He's not trying to find an exception. He's not trying to find a loophole. He's not trying to be deceptive and try and get what he wants. He's working honestly with integrity to get what to, to pursue uh, what he wants. Uh, now, just kind of briefly, if, if you're like, what's the deal with this legal thing? What's the deal with the name attached like the dead and all this stuff? Just kind of to explain this a little bit. In Israel at this time, land was connected to names, to people to family lines. Now, if there was nobody to inherit the land, someone else could redeem it. And this is part of Naomi's dilemma here. Because if Ruth is left unmarried, Elimelech, her father-in-law, uh, Naomi's husband who's died, his line will die. His line will be cut off. There won't be any more um, uh, of Naomi's line, but also there won't be any land to be able to go to Naomi's family. No offspring to carry on the name, no land connected to Naomi or to Ruth, and a future of homelessness and being destitute awaits them. But when Boaz decides to marry Ruth, uh, that means that Elimelech's line has a new life. This is more than just like one single marriage out of love. Obviously, there, it seems to be that as well. But it's something bigger than that. There's something about generational. Like they're thinking of what's going, what's going to happen, you know, hundreds of years later, not just in the years that they're there. And the land, if Boaz marries Ruth, the land then would now be secure in Naomi's family. So that's it's a symbol of a secure future that Boaz is winning and pursuing for them. But before Boaz can redeem this land, someone else is kind of first in line. And this other guy who would like more land, I mean, who wouldn't, right? Like, you want land? Yeah, okay, why would I not? So he says yes, until Boaz helps him realize that actually, if he was to redeem this new land, that would put his existing land claims in jeopardy. So we don't need to go into all the reasons why that is. You just need to know, like, that's, that's the deal behind it. So the guy backs off. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right, Boaz, thanks. So it's really the best thing for everybody. Now, Boaz, again, he didn't manipulate the situation. He plays straight. He plays fair. He pursued something he wanted, but in a way that honored others as well. So Boaz, I think what we see in this chapter, and really in all of Ruth, Boaz is honorable. He's trusted by others. He's a hard worker, and he's pursuing Ruth and Naomi's happiness, but all above board. He's not going behind the scenes, behind the back of anybody to, to get what he wants. But here's the thing. Boaz didn't need to do any of this, right? He's not in, in need of, of more land. He didn't have to go out of his way. He didn't have to haggle a bit, but he found something worth pursuing. And so he went forward with it. He found someone worth pursuing. So he got to it. Now, in the Christian life, 
before we pursue Jesus, He has pursued us. He found someone worth pursuing, which was us, before we find Him worth pursuing. He finds us first as someone who is a people who are worth pursuing, and He got to it. Now, for us, having been bought, redeemed by our Redeemer, Jesus brings us not just into His family, but into his mission. And his family is on a mission, and that's what we get to pursue. We get to be part of the same way that Jesus is pursuing others. And our line won't die. Our names won't be blotted out, and we'll have a secure future. The Christian life is one of action. It is one of work. It requires us to put the time in, to put in the effort, even when it's not stuff that we're super excited about, when it's not stuff that's easy to do. In fact, it's just when these more difficult times and these more difficult areas come that we really need to put in the work. If we stop at where something ceases to be fun or where something ceases to be enjoyable, we'll end up in the shallows. We'll never go deeper. But let's go deeper. And the bigger the change we want to see, the harder we must work, the longer we must work with it. Like, for example... Unity within the church. You can't say the church is a family without the work behind it. Like we, we love to say the church is a family, and we say we're a gospel-formed family on mission. To be a gospel-formed family instead of some other version of a family requires a work to be put in, and that's not always fun. That's, that can be really difficult at times. Do not expect it always to be super fun. The results of it can be really fun, but all the work behind it, like that, it, it is work. It will require much of you. What about mission? I mean, if you want other people to come to faith, don't expect to drift towards being able to do that. It's not just something that's going to you know, randomly hit you over the head one day. Expect the hard work behind the scenes. Expect the prayers, maybe even the years of prayers, the decades of prayers. Expect the seeking, the listening to other people's stories, the, the doing a difficult work of asking really good questions and letting other people talk a lot more than you do, the time you're just going to spend with them, like just to be with them, just present. Now, what about our missional communities? I mean, all of our missional communities are organized around a shared mission, and we, are, we construct these environments, these missional communities, as a place to be known as well as a gospel outpost for others to know Jesus. Now, especially if you are not a missional community leader, how are you owning that community for yourself? Or are you just going along to someone else's thing? What, what does it look like for you to really own being part, like being a, an actual family member of a small missional community family? What does it look like for you to really truly play your part instead of really leaving it to the other leaders to kind of do everything or to set the vision? Don't expect changes to happen in your missional community if you're not going to involve yourself. Again, this is difficult. It's not, it's not easy. None of this is easy. I mean, lastly, maybe like, what about your own walk with Jesus? Think, if you are feeling far from God, if you feel like there's a disconnect between your life and where He is, like He's somewhere out there and you just can't seem to, to, to make up that distance, are you putting the work in? Like, we say it's a relationship that we have with Jesus, but we often kind of treat it like a transaction. If we do pray a little bit, we expect to feel good, and if we don't, we're like, oh, God, what are you doing? The work, I mean, even just praying every day. How often do you pray every day? If you're not praying every day, then no surprise you would feel far from Him. 
not just kind of like little measly prayers. I mean, like actually speaking to him about what you actually care about, what actually matters within you. What about reading the Bible every day? This is the primary way how God speaks to his people is reading the Bible. And if we're not doing that every day, it would be like being married to somebody and not listening to them. Like if I was to come home and never listen to what Christina said, or even if I went a day without listening to what Christina said, like that wouldn't be a good thing. I wouldn't know her. She wouldn't know me. Of course there would be feel like there's a rift in the relationship. And really just praying and reading, and it doesn't have to be something massive. That that's just a very basic starting point at some and however that might work for where you are in your own spiritual life. So if you don't feel close to God and you aren't doing those things, you don't really have to wonder what to do next. It's obvious. Like you just talk to God a little bit more, um, or just talk to God full stop. Read the Word, and if you maybe this is something you can't do by yourself, so ask someone in your missional community or a core group to be like, I really kind of want to grow a little bit here. Can you just ask me how it's going, or or can you text me from time to time? Hey, how how are things? I mean, we do the things we care about. So if you care about your relationship with God, it's going to require for you to put the time in. And that might mean, you know, time, less time on Netflix or less time sleeping or less time whatever other things might be. Again, it doesn't have to be a massive thing. It could just be five to ten minutes if it's not a normal thing for you. And maybe kind of on that point, um, it's not just about kind of putting time in as if it's like a clock to clock in or clock out. It's kind of like what kind of time it should be a good level of quality time. Like, don't just read a bit, pray a bit, tick a box and move on. I mean, the reason why this all takes time and the reason why it's difficult is because it really is a relationship. Few relationships, in fact, I don't think I know really any, that are worth anything, that are really deep, um, don't have some levels of difficulty to them or don't require stuff from us. It does require lots from us in order to be in a relationship with God. And that's actually a really good thing for us because that changes who we are. The idea of being still, even just for a moment before our God, offering up your cares, offering up your anxieties. We know you have them. Do you, how often do you talk to God about them? Honestly talk to Him about them. Ask Him to deal with you, uh, not with others first or whatever kind of circumstance you're in first, but with you. Ask Him to restore you. Ask Him to continue to heal your heart. Ask Him to continue to soften your heart, especially the areas that you kind of don't want to bring to Him or areas that you're really not dealing with. There is the Holy Spirit living inside anyone who follows Jesus. That, that, that's an amazing reality. The Holy Spirit residing within anyone who follows Jesus. Let's not overlook His presence, right? He's there. Let's not ignore Him. Ask Him to do His work, to bring to mind what you need to know and what you need to change. So those are blessings pursued. There's work on our part, right? Responsibility from us. Maybe, uh, secondly, we see in the story it, blessings given, and this is a bit of a focus on others' work in our lives. It's so not just our work, but the how other people in our life uh, you know, interact with us and, and uh, do the work of, of blessing us through God. Um, as we live this life of pursuit, this life of pursuing God, others speak blessings into our lives. And we see this in uh, Ruth and Boaz's story here in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4. Uh, verses 11 and 12, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together 
built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Other people in Ruth and Boaz's lives, especially those who are more mature and more wise than them, are speaking blessings to them. They're speaking blessings to them. And Ruth and Boaz need to hear this, just like all of us need to hear this. These are not just kind of feel-good throwaway words. Like These are words that would get to the heart of their identity. It's about their future and how their actions are going to affect people who come far after they're gone. It's about their values. It's about their longings as a people. It's a family with a legacy. Little did they know that their line would not only be famous in Bethlehem, but would be famous the world over. Now, nobody saw this coming, did they? And that's really how God works. It's really how God works. Even our best circumstances can't hold a match to God's plans. Now, just two things to say here on this point. We all need to hear blessings. That's maybe not something that uh, our current kind of uh, contemporary culture does very well, but that's okay because we're a church. We have a different kind of culture. We have a gospel-formed culture. We all need to speak blessings. But if you're younger in the faith, especially if you're younger in the faith, you need to seek out those who are more mature. Those who are older in the faith, you need to seek out the younger. So if you're older, if you're a leader, if you're more mature, where are you speaking words like this to others? You may not feel like you're more mature, but if you're leading a missional community, that's you. If you're over the age of 35 in this church, that's you. Where are you speaking words of life into other people? Something more than just kind of hanging out or just being polite, but directed words of life. There's a boldness there, isn't it? Sometimes we can be a little bit ashamed of being bold, but that's not really how God's people are supposed to act. To love people boldly with love, that, that is transformative. There are younger people who desperately need to hear these words of blessing. Who's going to give it to them? They don't know they need it sometimes, but they do. We all need it, of course. But if you are more mature in the faith, how are you giving to others in this way? How are you blessing others this way? To know someone well enough to speak words of life, of encouragement, even of challenge. Those are really blessings. Get to know someone younger in the faith in such a way that you can be like these elders in this story. And if you're younger, stop. Listen. Like, stop talking and listen. If nobody is speaking to you, no one who's older is kind of speaking these words to you, find them. It's worth the fight. Like, drag them out and say, I need to hear what life is like, and I need to know I'm doing okay, all that kind of stuff. Ask, beg, plead for others to disciple you. You need it more than you think. I guarantee you that you need it more than you think. When I was at uni, um, forever ago. I was uh, living with five other Christian guys, and we all felt this need to be discipled in our lives. We wanted to know what it meant to be a husband. We wanted to know what it meant to be good fathers. We wanted to know kind of like what it meant to be a man, the way that the Bible describes them. And we begged and pleaded some elders in our church to, to kind of help us with this, to disciple us, really. And um, it, it took far too long. And some elders just kind of never got back or maybe like, oh, these guys are weird or whatever the deal is. But eventually one gave in. We wore one down eventually and he gave in. I mean, it took probably like a good six months, which is not the best. But that experience uh, of 
of going walking with those guys my age with a, another guy who is you know much older, experienced, had a family, was married, all that kind of stuff was completely transformative for me. Completely transformative for me. We talked a lot about theology. We read through all of Grudem's systematic theology, which is a big deal. From I was like I don't know twenty or twenty one, all however many eight hundred pages or seven hundred pages of that book. But the best part was, I mean, that, that was all good, and that was very helpful, but the best part was getting to see this older man, who wasn't perfect, get to see this older man be a good dad, not perfect, but good, learning uh, what leading a family could be like. And he came from worse background than I did, and I didn't come from the best kind of background. And hearing him say over and over to us, you can do this. You can do this. With God's grace, you can do this. You might have, have no idea what's going on, but God's grace is more than enough to cover and more than enough to lead you. You can come from the most broken of broken homes, the most dysfunctional of families, and God's grace is more than enough to cover it. With God's help, you can do it. Those were words of blessing to me, words of blessing to the other guys as well, I know. And they, they made a massive impact on us. See, God has designed families to be like that, and church families to be like that. Let's lean into that and, and speak kind of bold words of blessing and love to each other. But there does exist a gap between the blessing and the reality at times, right? There, there, there's, there, there's the gap, at, at the very least, between when God speaks the words of blessing and when we actually realize and get to hold the blessing ourselves. There's a gap in there. And in that gap, we are tempted to not believe. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to uh, disbelieve whatever kind of words of love that we hear from Jesus to us. We're tempted to become bitter. There's a gap between the word and the action, the blessings spoken and the blessings received. We are always, always impatient here. Always. We want something really bad. And it can be a great thing. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's a better job. Like, whatever it is. And it doesn't come on our timetable that we've designed for ourselves. So we fret. We freak out. We're tempted to go towards bitterness. Like Naomi in the first chapter. We're just like her. A bitterness is a heart that has given up hope. Bitterness doesn't really believe that God is at work. But He is. He is at work. And that's our last section here. Blessings realized. Lastly, the Lord's work with blessings being realized in Ruth chapter 4. This is the culmination of the whole story. The whole story. Not often do we see a genealogy at the end of a book and go, Yeah! I love reading about people who I don't really know, but they sound vaguely familiar and who they begat and who they begat. But that's exactly how we should act here. Like, but let's maybe not get ahead of ourselves. Look at um, verse 13. We'll get to genealogies in a second. I bet you're all very excited about that. Uh, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. What a great thing. A marriage. That's so good. What a blessing. Marriage wasn't simply an expression of love and devotion. It meant protection and it meant care. Even more true is the people of God called the Bride of Christ will be cared for and loved by our devoted husband, the Lord. Ruth has a guardian redeemer. We have the redeemer. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Then Ruth got pregnant, had a son. What a blessing. Just as barrenness was a symbol of God's judgment in the Old Testament, becoming pregnant was a symbol of God's blessing. God's family is always meant to grow. And not just like 
physically, although obviously we praise God for babies and things like that, but spiritually. Now, who gets the praise? The Lord does, and rightfully so. God blesses his people. We are not left alone. Just as this baby will renew Naomi's life and sustain her and give her a secure future, even more true is that of the Lord who renews our lives and sustains us and gives us a secure future. There's so much I'm blessing here. Let's just take a step back and look at kind of three particular things. I just want to get into three particular things about God's blessings. First, God's blessings are undeserved. God's blessings are undeserved. A gift is not called for. There's no, it's not like, it's not a transaction. It's not payback. It's a gift is never necessary. When you give a gift to someone, it's not payback. It's undeserved. What did Ruth do to gain blessings? What did Naomi do to to gain blessings? Nothing. They did not deserve it. This means no amount of doing good is going to manipulate God into giving you what you want. No amount of doing good is going to manipulate God into giving you what you want. He's done you one better because he knows you can't do enough good for it. He's given you himself. He took all your bad stuff and gave you all his good stuff. God's blessings are undeserved. Secondly, God's blessings are not limited by our limits. God's blessings are not limited by our limits. Ruth is an outsider. The text often says she's from Moab or a Moabites. Moabites. Moabess. Moabess. That's probably the right word. It's kind of a weird, strange word. Like, why do we need a different word for a woman who's from Moab than a guy who's from Moab? Okay. She worshiped other gods. That's really what they're trying to say. She's not from here. She's not an Israelite. She's from Moab. She spent her life worshiping other other gods that the Lord has condemned. She's not she maybe she looks different. Maybe she talks different. Maybe she believes in different things. Maybe she has different cultural things. God doesn't limit his blessings. People who are like this or like that, who vote this way or that way, who speak this way or that way, or they're from this part of the country, this part, we divide ourselves there. Not God. We do. God does not limit himself. Also, we're limited by thinking trouble only leads to trouble. Without the trouble in this story to begin with, that that precipitated all these events, without that trouble, there would be no blessing. We think trouble, there's nothing possibly good could come from it, so we avoid it like all costs. Without the trouble, there'd be no blessing. Death comes before resurrection. And your trouble, I guarantee you, you may be missing it, but your trouble, whatever it is, is worth more than the trouble itself. I guarantee you that's true. Thirdly, God's blessings keep going. God's blessings are more than just for us. As amazing as it is for us to be blessed by God, He has given us too much. It's like pouring water into your hands. It just kind of like keep, it overflows, it overflows. We can't keep it for ourselves. It's like a perpetual motion machine always going and there's just, just too much to give out. It keeps going. It keeps giving. Can Ruth's single life contain all the blessings from God? No, of course not. It leads to David and even leads to Jesus. Even in Ruth's blessing, which is only partial, it's more than she can handle. And there's a reason for this. God has designed it this way. Because when God blesses us, it's never meant to stop with us. It's never meant to stop with us. We might be inclined to try and 
hoard all his gifts for ourselves. You know, he might try and hoard all of uh, the way he's gifted us, our money, our time, our commitments, our relationships. We try and organize them around what works best for us. But God has blessed us to be a blessing all the way from the beginning. Any blessing that God has given to his people is always blessed to be a blessing. And there's no reason to hoard it all to yourself because there's more than you can handle anyway. And you're going to be missing out by not being a part of giving that to other people. Now let's look at um, verse 16 here. Verse 16. This might seem like a throwaway line, but I feel like this is very important. Then Naomi took the child, Ruth's child, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Just think of what that might, what that must have been for Naomi. How that must have felt. All the years of trouble, even from the famine to her husband dying, to having to look after her, her daughter-in-law, her kind of begging by taking whatever's kind of leftover scraps, all of, and then now in verse 16 of chapter 4, she's holding the blessings in her hand. What a moment that must have been. I wonder if she thought back to leaving her home in Bethlehem. I wonder if she thought back about her life in Moab and all the horrible things, all the trouble that she went through, and then she's there holding this child, a symbol of hope, even in our worst trouble. This child wasn't an idea. This child was not a set of rules. He was real. He was a person. And if we've missed the fact that this child stands for something bigger, far bigger, we get the genealogy at the end, just in case you didn't get it. Something ending with King David. But even though the genealogy ends there in Ruth, we know it extends further. It's five verses of, of the genealogy. What amazing things that, because from David eventually comes Jesus. This baby born in Bethlehem that we get to read about in Ruth chapter 4 leads to another, the story of another baby being born in Bethlehem. And what Ruth knows only in partial, as amazing as it is, but only in partial does she know it, we know in full. Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. Naomi got to hold the partial blessing. We get to behold the full blessing. Now, Jesus was born a helpless, crying baby, a real child that Mary and Joseph were able to hold, to hold and to care for. Jesus was not an idea, is not an idea. He was and is not a worldview. He is a person. And this little child that needed caring for is the child who now cares for us, who blesses us. And Jesus pursued us so that we would be blessed. We have been blessed to be a blessing. What are Jesus' blessings? Well, if let's narrow it down just to Ruth chapter 4. If we could only narrow down all the blessings that we learn about from Jesus that we learn about through Ruth, Here's just some things. The first, Jesus is our guardian protecting us. Two, Jesus is our redeemer paying the price, buying us back from darkness. Three, Jesus stayed the course and followed through what he said he was going to do. Jesus is honorable. Four, Jesus announces his redemption of us to the whole world. Just as the elders kind of spoke blessing to, to uh, uh, Boaz and Ruth. 
5. Jesus saw our names disappearing. He saw our family lines dying. And instead of letting them die, he wrote them forever in the book of life using his blood as the ink. 6. Jesus is preparing a wedding feast for us now. And one day, we will be with him forever. 7. Jesus will never leave us. He will always guard us and always protect us. 8. Jesus not only renews our lives, just as Naomi would holding that child is getting a renewed life, but Jesus gives us new lives. What number is this? 9? I've lost track. Jesus sustains us at all times, even when we're exhausted, even when we're tired, even when we're in grief. But let us not forget the biggest blessing, really the only blessing in comparison with all the rest. Jesus is the long-awaited Son. Jesus is the long-awaited Son who we set our hopes upon. He Himself is our greatest blessing. And through Him, we get to be blessed. I love Ephesians 1.3, and I quote it often because it's so short and mind-blowingly massive. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. How many of them? Uh, Paul, how many? Like Every single one. And blessed. Has blessed. Past tense. Has happened. Already. Every spiritual blessing. How many blessings does our Father have? All of them have been given to us through Jesus. Our blessings have been realized in Jesus. As real as Naomi holding her grandchild, as real as Ruth going through labor and giving birth, that's how real the blessings are that we have now in Jesus. Now, maybe that's hard for you to wrap your head around, it could also be hard to believe because you don't feel it all the time. I don't. You don't understand it all the time. I don't. I'm there with you. But this is maturity in the Christian life. Over time, realizing how these blessings, how every single one of the spiritual blessings are actually true in your life. That's what Christian maturity looks like. And the more you realize this, the more secure in your relationship with the Lord, the more free you are. Because you've been given everything. You're not held down by a lack of, of anything. The more you're able to be a blessing to others, the more you realize all the blessings you already have. You're going to be more loving because of that. You're going to be more forgiving because of that. You're going to be more hungry to read the Bible, to talk to God through prayer. You're going to be more risky for the gospel. You're going to be more bold in the way that you love people. If you don't believe that God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, you will limit yourself to a small life. That's just how, it, that's how we act. But all of this, everything we're talking about here, all of this came with a price. Just as Boaz couldn't take the land just because he wanted it, he had to pay. He had to go through the process and make it legitimate. The same for Jesus and us. God, in his justice, requires that actions have consequences. And we want the same thing. We see someone doing something wrong, and they should know about it. They should have the right consequences applied. That's called justice. But God isn't merely about justice. He's all about justice and 
all about mercy as well. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's a gift of love. It's an undeserved gift. So if justice is getting what we deserve, and mercy is not getting what we deserve, how does that work out? How can God be just and merciful at the same time and not be a contradiction and not just kind of choose which one he wants to be which day or which time period? Now, we all want God to be just, especially when people harm us. We want, you know, consequences out on them. And we all want God to be merciful, especially when we harm others. We don't want the consequences. But how does that all work? Now, this is all the reason why Jesus had to die on the cross, why it was a necessity if we were going to come to God, why it was a necessary thing for Jesus to die on the cross. The cross is where justice and mercy kiss. Two sides of different coins coming together on the cross. It's like a tryst. You know what a tryst is? It's a, like a private romantic meetup that shouldn't happen. Two people who shouldn't be together are. The cross is a tryst where grace and mercy kiss. Jesus' death is God's justice. All the consequences of sin completely poured out. Nothing held back. Jesus' death is also God's mercy because everything that was poured out was poured out on him, not on us. That's why God can say, you are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, which is pretty far, because Jesus died. He paid the price. It's finished. This is what it means for Jesus to be the Redeemer. Now, for all of us who follow Jesus, for all who trust in Him, all who surrender to Him and His love, we get His blessings. We get His blessings. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is hope. That's worth seeking. That is how blessings can come even when everything else looks like trouble. If you follow Jesus, you need to reflect on this often. I know I do. Because this is who you are. Fundamentally who you are. And ask God, where am I holding back from you, God? Where am I holding back from others? Am I allowing like, your blessings to to, to flow to other people, or am I just trying to keep them back for myself? Do I, maybe I don't even realize what I'm doing. Now, if you don't follow Jesus, well, all of this can easily be yours. You, you can be a part of this with us. You might be thinking, yeah, but my life would have to change. Yes, it will. I guarantee that. And we'll, we will be honest and upfront. It's not an easy process. It's a lifelong process. But in all of that, it's a change for the better. Because I think, really, we think we have it great you know, by not doing, you know, what God might call us to do. I think the problem is we're too easily pleased by things that are far below our dignity. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia series and lots of other things, he wrote this. I'll put this on the screen kind of big. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So let's give up. Let's give up. Give up that chase after mud pies. What do we even think we're getting out of it? Let's give up the small lives. And, and in our giving up, 
Let's give in to God's love. Let's surrender to our good Father who loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Let me pray.